Democrats. First, though, uh, we are starting with some very serious news and the new numbers. You've likely heard this in the news. The B.C. Coroner Service earlier today confirming 2020 was this province's worst year on record in terms of lives lost because of illicit drug overdoses. There were 1,716 deaths due to illicit drugs in 2020. That is a 74% increase over the year before. On average in this province, 4.7 people dying every day last year due to drug overdose. That's compared to 2.7 deaths daily recorded in 2019. We got these numbers earlier today from Chief Coroner Lisa Lapointe. These are sons, brothers, fathers, daughters, sisters, friends and colleagues. Thousands of years of life and potential are gone. We must turn this terrible trajectory around. What can we do? Joining us now is Guy Felicella, peer clinical advisor with the Overdose Emergency Response Centre and BC Centre on Substance Abuse. Guy, thanks so much for joining us again. Hi, thanks, Jill, for having me. Uh, The numbers are, well, I I would say they are shocking, but uh, probably not given we knew what the trajectory was. We've had the monthly numbers uh, leading up, but seeing the year in review and hearing that question from Lisa LaPointe, what do we do? How do you answer that question? Well, you know, I mean, it's heartbreaking to, you know, so many people that have, have died over the years, but especially in 2020 was a significantly hard year, not only for myself, but for others. I mean, I've lost, you know, many friends this year as well. And, um, you know, the solution is um, drug policy reform, which is really regulate uh, substances um, and so that people can access them in a way that's outside of the medical system. If, if we can actually get there to do those things, um, we will save a lot of lives. Uh, do you think we're heading there in that there were many questions asked of Lisa LaPointe earlier today as well with the idea of decriminalization and the fact that uh, I know uh, Vancouver is in talks to decriminalize. Uh, we now know that uh, Sheila Malcolmson, the provincial minister in charge, uh, has written a letter asking that BC uh, be able to decriminalize. Do you think that would make a difference? Well, it, yes. It's, I mean, it's a start in the, in the right direction. I mean, uh, you know, the the next logical step after decriminalization would be regulation. So uh, it's it's part of it. But I, I mean, we we need to really have a plan. I mean, we just don't have one. Uh, you know, we work on certain aspects such as, you know, try to give people pharmaceutical drugs, but then, you know, people aren't able to access them. We, we need a plan in place, like a continuum of care when you walk into the emergency room for, for a heart condition, that there's a plan and process that you go through um, with specialists after specialists to see it's immediate. Um, and with uh, people who are struggling with, you know, the illicit drug market, um, they don't have that. And so it, it's what we have right now. Yeah, it, it works for very few. Um, and, and that's why we see people dying at this rate. Uh, Lisa LaPointe talked uh, quite a bit as well about what she referred to as the ad hoc system of recovery in that there are many different recovery programs. Uh, they're often very expensive. Uh, so even if people do get to access these programs, there's no standard. There's nothing that's based on evidence saying this is a program that we believe that that shows that it works. Uh, this is a program that's that's maybe more suited for this person as opposed to this person. And she really talked about the fact that needs to be either made public, needs to be streamlined, it needs to be addressed. What do you say to that? 
Well, you know, yes, 100%. I think, honestly, it was easier for me to access treatment and recovery in the 90s than it is today in 2021. And that is sad because, you know, what happens is is that most people who enter uh, a detox facility, uh, they're released either, you know, after seven days homeless. These wait lists are essentially turning into uh, death lists where people are still using substances and trying to access uh, recovery options, it's extremely challenging. And let's just say you do go through the whole rigid process to get into recovery and treatment and you get through the wait list, the, the questions that you have to answer and the calls that you have to make, and then you finally get in there. And then it, you know, it, it, it oftentimes uh, doesn't work. And then when that treatment fails, um, you know, if you do want to try it again, they sure don't make it appealing for you to access it again. It's, it's very challenging. And so, you know, people just often feel hopeless. And I felt that same way for so long uh, in, in my life. And it took a miracle for me to get through it. Nobody should have to go through what I had to go through to get treatment or support or help. Okay. What we really need is two doors. One for safer supply on demand that people can access for instead of and so we can remove people completely from the illicit drug market. And then also we need another door where it's treatment on demand. So if people do want to access treatment and recovery. And yeah, you have to look at the recovery system um, in, in a whole picture and say which places are practicing uh, evidence based and and what is evidence based and explain it to people so people have an understanding of it. So for you, what was it that finally clicked or made it possible for you to get into treatment and to recover? Well, I think one of the things that's often overlooked is I didn't go into treatment, uh, an inpatient treatment program. I went to an outpatient treatment program for a year and had counseling. And, um, you know, that the counseling part, the trauma part that I was dealing with was really the reason why I was stuck in using these substances and why going to these inpatient treatment centers for four months, I didn't even scratch the surface of the trauma that I was dealing with. And so uh, more outpatient treatment programs, I think, are beneficial in the sense that people don't have to uproot their lives and leave their jobs or, you know, if they've gotten housing, they can show up at these places and, and learn different techniques of recovery, not just one model, but learn like five different models of recovery and what that looks like for the individual. Right, because that's kind of what uh, what she was alluding to or talking about earlier today as well, is that there's not, not only is there not an evidence-based system of types of recovery, uh, there's nothing that shows what might work for somebody and might not, uh, and what different types of treatment would work for different uh, different scenarios. Yeah, correct. And for me, what worked for me was trauma therapy. And that's not covered under MSP. You have to pay for that. And unfortunately, I'm sure we could all use a little bit of trauma therapy, but the ones that need it the most can't access it because it's unaffordable. It's impossible to access. And if, and if trauma is one of the main drivers of a substance use disorder, then why don't we have trauma therapy covered by MSP? It's a, a very good question. Uh, Guy, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, again, thanks so much for always being so uh, available to come on the program. Great to talk with you again. Thanks, Jill. Have a great day. It is cold and we are expecting colder temperatures in the next few days. And about 10 hours ago, the mayor of Coquitlam posted a video on his Facebook page and it started like this. Hello, Coquitlam Mayor Richard Stewart. It's uh, well after midnight. Uh, It's now Thursday morning. It's pretty cold now, but it'll get a lot colder. And I want to introduce you to a heated building. This building behind me has been... uh, heated with the lights on for more than a decade. It's uh, not 
not used, it's empty, uh, but it's very well maintained. Occasionally used by the film industry, uh, Deadpool uh, had the big fight scene there in front of the building, and uh, I think it was the uh, dormitory, dormitory and school for errant children in the movie. Uh, tonight, it is useless. And Coquitlam Mayor Richard Stewart is on the line with me now. Thank you so much for making some time for us. My pleasure. Uh, first, I, I, I wonder how much sleep you you get, seeing as this was posted well after midnight. Uh, but thank you uh, for doing this. And can you talk a bit about why it was important to, to once again bring this up and show that here is this building that's completely livable but not being used? Well, and it wasn't specific to that building. It's uh, it's a challenge that a whole bunch of people are facing, and there's lots of people that are having sleepless nights tonight, some of whom because uh, they're out in the cold, and others because they're worried about those that are out in the cold. Uh, we as a community of the Tri-Cities have been trying to, uh, been asked by the province and lots of communities across the province have been asked to identify spaces that could be used by BC Housing for uh, temporary shelters, uh, and we consistently have kept referring the province to its own buildings. It has almost all of the empty, heated buildings in uh, in our community. Um, it has 400 acres of, of land at Riverview, a former mental ho- hospital, and more than a dozen really good quality, well-maintained, heated buildings that are empty or mostly empty and occasionally used for the film industry. Um, and... It just—I happened to have a tour through uh, Center Lawn, a building I hadn't been in really for about 35 years. I used to go there somewhat often when I was back at SFU in my SFU days, um, but it hadn't changed. It is a well-maintained uh, pavilion uh, that would uh, typically have 400 patients or something like that, and. Um, and it's been empty for uh, many years now, uh, but heated and, and occasionally used for film. So it frustrates us at the coldest time of the year, uh, uh, coldest time perhaps in a decade, that we um, are tr- desperately trying to tuck people under bridges when there are spaces that could be used even temporarily for emergency shelter. What do you think would need to be done to to get it up and running? Like you said, it's a livable building. As far as would there need to be staffing or security, or what would actually need to happen to move people into that building? Well, the province has already said the staffing and security and everything that's necessary for a, an emergency shelter is available. They will they will provide it. Um, they just need a building. And uh, this particular building, I think if you made the announcement right now that it will be available tonight, it would be available tonight, and, and, and I, would go, I would go sleep there. Um, I would, uh, I, you know, people should understand that there are buildings at Riverview that aren't in this condition, but there are dozens that are, and many that continue to house patients um, in various programs across the facility, in including uh, Coast Mental Health programs related to rehab and uh, uh, rehabilitation for folks who are mentally ill and addicted. Uh, So there's, there are, there's good things happening at Riverview, but there's a lot of empty buildings, and we know that there's inadequate treatment facilities for addictions and for mental illness. Uh, we want, as a city, we want the government to reestablish a critical mass of proper treatment, uh, of uh, on-demand treatment for mental illness and addictions uh, right at Riverview, uh, state-of-the-art. But you know, tonight, 
we need an emergency shelter. And this building was just the, the building that I happen to have photos of. Right. And, and certainly given the numbers today that were released by the coroner's office on overdose deaths, I think the need for addiction services is in the, the spotlight perhaps more than ever. Uh, that obviously seems like, like a, a more uh, complicated plan and one that might take a bit more time. But like you say, if the, the staffing and the money and security is there, all that's missing is the building. Here's a building that's there. Who is it then could, that could flip the switch and say, yes, let's do this and let's open up the doors to people who would otherwise be sleeping outside. Yeah, well, I mean, let's face it, everybody in government is, is a caring individual, and there's uh, lots of complexity to it. The, built, the site is owned by BC Housing, not by the uh, ministry responsible for health, addictions, and such. Um, so, But I, I think it's possible to get past that. There's a new minister, uh, not saying that the, that the change in ministry by itself is a barrier or an advantage. It's simply that the minister has to get uh, his feet wet on the portfolio, it's it's there's lots of complications i just uh wish that we could advance it more quickly given the urgency uh here uh about 6 years ago the uh city of coquitlam put forward a proposal we hired dr john higginbottom who's the former vice president at riverview and his recommendation was to take this building this particular building center lawn and reopen it as an addictions treatment facility for mental health and addictions. And we've been advancing that for all this time. Uh, We did manage to convince the minister about six years ago uh, to open one of the buildings, uh, the Brookside Hillside, and that's the rehab uh, facility that I was talking about. These are in older buildings. They're not perfect, but they're um, a damn sight better than uh, the challenges that we see with opioid addiction and mental illness on the street. Uh, We need this on-demand treatment, which is the longer-term goal. Um, Tonight, we just need a a key to that door. Right, which is, on the one hand, when we say it's complicated, uh, there's all levels of government, there's BC Housing, there's different agencies, a new minister, and it sounds that way. But but isn't, uh, on some level, aren't we overcomplicating it? Like you said, we need a key to get people inside. Yes, I, that said, uh, you know, there's, I know that I need, what I know about it is the simple side of it. There's probably complexities. I get that, and there is with every aspect of running a city as well. So I'm not trying to throw anyone under the bus. I got thrown under the bus yesterday on this issue. I don't do that. I do want, though, for government to take a good look at it and to, and to do it quickly. I really believe that, uh, and I, there are people, there are experts at Riverview who believe that uh, Center Lawn and North Lawn and some of the other pavilions are ripe for this kind of reality that we could um, open them relatively quickly uh, for a permanent kind of treatment facility and that we could open them very quickly in an emergency. Uh, and I, I really, I, I advanced it last night, possibly uh, partly out of frustration, but partly out of just the the fact that I wasn't the only one that was sleepless, uh, that there are lots of people out there that were shivering in the, in the desperate cold last night um, and trying to figure out where they're going to get their next medication from and trying to get their next meal and all of those realities at a time when uh, the temperatures were below zero. What else did you see? And and I do sense, and we can hear the frustration and as well in the video that you posted uh, to the Facebook page. But so, so judging by this, I'm guessing it was around two o'clock in the morning. Uh, You were, you took the video. Did you also, did you see people sleeping outside or what else did you see? 
No, I didn't there. I, I certainly earlier in the evening. I I cycled yesterday uh, uh, to the office and back. But and then earlier in the evening, I toured some of our standard homeless camps, and I you know you see the propane tanks that. Uh, people have uh, managed to secure. We know they're stolen, but my goodness, I'm glad they have them tonight uh, and last night because uh, you, you could see that some were set up better uh, for the weather, but we also know that some aren't. And um, we know that the, some of these most vulnerable individuals, uh, granted, the public views them potentially as uh, criminals because they steal things in order to satisfy the, the day-to-day realities of their life. We can help them, but we can also help all of society by making it so that we don't ignore homelessness and addictions, that we step up and offer uh, treatment right now, offer support right now to, to those who, who need it. All right. Well, Mayor Stewart, thanks so much for uh, talking about this again on the program. We will continue following it and hopefully see uh, some changes and some progress. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. We've been talking about the border at Peace Arch Park this week, the tents. The Premier addressed it yesterday in his news conference. We were chatting with Len Saunders, immigration lawyer who's based in Blaine. He does a lot of his business in that park. But we were also talking with Len about Point Roberts. And every time he's on the show, I always ask him if there's been any change because he has clients. He's very close to people that live in that community as well. The short answer was no. Point Roberts is still very much isolated and hasn't been given the same exemptions that some other parts of the country with similar situations have been granted during the pandemic. So is that going to change? Well, it doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. And that's having a particular negative impact on seniors that are living in Point Roberts. And joining me to talk more about that is Galen Wood, president of the Circle of Care Point Roberts. Galen, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me on the show, Jill. Uh, How many seniors do you figure at this point are still living and calling Point Roberts home? Well, 30 that we can count for sure. There could be more, but um, there are at least 30 who are feeling the impact of the borders being closed and not allowing Canadian family to come and help look after them. And your group, Circle of Care, what do you do? Well, our mission is to keep residents uh, of Point Roberts um, with services, volunteer services and referral resources in order to keep them in their homes for as long as they wish here in Point Roberts. And what would you say the main concerns are or the main areas of concern when it comes to seniors who are now so isolated because of the border closure? Well, we have a number of examples where um, people who have been residing here who are dual citizens, for instance, um, and have had longstanding relationships with doctors and dentists and pharmacies um, in just across the border in Tawasin or Ladner and uh, now are not allowed to go to those um, if they are a resident of Point Roberts, they must be, go around, um, all the way around to Whatcom County in the United States. And so this is putting a, a great difficulty um, on their shoulders and on ours. 
um, to be able to get the, these people to doctor's appointments and dentist appointments. So there aren't even exemptions given as far as if somebody has to come into Canada uh, to go to one of those appointments? Uh, not at this point. That's got to be uh, difficult. Not at this point. Yeah, for, for, for the residents as well as, I understand, too, family members. In, in a lot of the cases, there are family members that live on the Canadian side uh, that they're now looking at, uh, they would face quarantine uh, if they're crossing over and coming back, if they are even allowed to do so. That's exactly right. Um, and many of them, obviously, if they're children of, of our seniors here or grandchildren of our seniors here, um, they're probably working or they're in school and they cannot take 14 days quarantine every time they come across the border. And so it's just not possible for them. It's not feasible for them to be able to come and uh, help look after uh, their relatives and bring them into Canada to get appointments if they can get their appointments there. Uh, when talking, uh, I mentioned we've been talking with Lynn Saunders, who's an immigration lawyer. Uh, he yes. was talking about the fact that, that it's kind of a ghost town, that many of the families that have children or younger people, uh, maybe uh, they might be dual citizens, uh, have left, uh, have gone and found accommodation elsewhere. I'm guessing it's not that simple uh, financially or, or even for a number of reasons for seniors living there to do that. Uh, no, it really isn't. Um, we have... Um, People who have children in, who live in Can in the, in, sorry, in Point Roberts, and, um, their children have been going to school in Canada for several years, and they have had to move into, um, Canada so their children can continue to go to school. Um, or they have had to find places for their children to, uh, to stay with other people so they can continue to go to school. Um, and as far as um, our seniors are concerned, um, it's really not feasible for them to move into Canada um, unless they can go and live with family. Right. And are they U.S. citizens or are they mainly people with, with dual or, or what, what citizenship are we talking about? We're talking about U.S. citizens. Um, but the, it's the dual citizens who might be able to go. They would quarantine for two weeks, and then they would be able to stay if they're dual citizens. Our U.S. citizens can't do that, right. of course. Yeah, of course. Um, what, what do you think about the fact that we have seen other uh, areas, there's not that many of them that are, that are unique in the sense of, of Point Roberts, but do have kind of weird uh, ways of being cut off and, and the way that the border uh, between Canada and, and the U.S. works. Uh, Stewart, B.C., Hyder, Alaska. It seems like other communities have found or the officials have found ways to, to make this work. Uh, who is it, do you think, then, that, that needs to look at this or has the power to do this for Point Roberts? Well, I would only, I can only conjecture that it could be the the BC government, possibly in conjunction with the, your federal government, um, that the province could have some impact on that. We were told at one time that the reason that Point Roberts was not included with the others. Um, is that because we are not remote enough. Hmm. But that's only on paper. 
Right. Is that, is that saying that, oh, well, there is the other option of people could get on a boat and go to Whatcom County? Yes, they could get on a boat or <clears throat> if it's an essential um, necessity, like a doctor's appointment or a dentist appointment for any one of us who are U.S. citizens, uh, we can, as long as we have those appointments, we can be allowed to drive through as long as we don't stop in Canada. But that's not feasible for seniors who are no longer driving. Mm. So, yeah, so what would a senior do that's living there that isn't driving but has a doctor's appointment? Well, fortunately, we have Circle of Care, and we are able to take them to appointments. Um, And now we are driving ourselves uh, down to Whatcom County uh, to pick up their prescriptions for them. Wow, that's that's great that uh, that you're able to do that. But um, I mean, not a not a permanent solution, given that we no. anticipate the border is going to be closed for some time to come. It appears to be that way, and um, there is a general uh, economic impact to that, since Canadians are eighty percent of the property ownership in Point Roberts. And um, that's a whole nother story <laughs> that they're not allowed to come down and, and look after their property. Um, and so our businesses um, are struggling. And that concerns me, particularly for our seniors who don't have any other access to buy groceries um, and to get any of the other supplies that they are used to being able to go into Canada to get. Right, because we were also hearing from from Len, and again, Mm. I've not been to Point Roberts, obviously, because of the border closure since that happened, but Len was saying he was hearing, um, Len Saunders, the lawyer, uh, that that it's tough getting groceries, that it's not, they're not being stocked as much as they were before. What is it like right now? Um, It is exactly as Len was describing. We're very fortunate that the owner of our grocery store is willing to do whatever it takes to keep it open because that is our only local source of food unless we're growing our own in the summertime. Hmm. Um, And uh, we have no restaurants that are open on a regular basis. We have um, one that has takeout on Saturday, on, um, Saturday afternoon from 4 to 7 uh, by order. And um, another one that sometimes is opened on the weekends and sometimes not, depending on the weather, because you can only be seated outside. Um, and at this time of year, that's pretty iffy, yeah. <laughs> particularly this week. Um, so... That means that we have to really rely on our grocery store. And, um, of course, because their business is hurting, they've had to raise their prices. And so this is even putting a greater hardship on our seniors, many of whom are on fixed incomes. As the prices keep rising in the grocery store, um, they have less options of what they're going to purchase. All right. Well, Galen, I hope something does change soon. We'll continue covering this and uh, trying to get some more answers. But thanks so much for making the time for us today. Appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much, Jill, and I appreciate your support. 
Thanks so much for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Well, it's often easy to find things to complain about, to, to find things that are negative, but this is a new campaign. It was launched by Tourism Vancouver, and it is inviting people to share their love for the city. And joining me to talk more about this is Royce Schwinn, the CEO of Tourism Vancouver. Royce, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, great. Thanks for having me, Jill. Appreciate it. It is nice to talk about something that's asking for positive feedback, asking people to take a second or a minute and figure out what it is that makes them happy and makes them feel good. Uh, So what exactly are you asking people to do in this campaign? It's really very simple. It's really going out and supporting your local businesses, doing it safely, and sharing your love for Vancouver. Hashtag love Vancouver. Uh, Share what you love about this great city that we're so fortunate to live in. And do you have any guidelines for people or or specific areas where they should focus? We're really talking about supporting the the, the tourism industry, all those businesses, the attractions, the restaurants, retail, uh, even hotels, if you can do a downtown stay. And if you can post your experiences in around your local neighborhood, explore and visit safely, share your love for the city with others. And what should people do then? I know there's a hashtag to use. So what do they do uh, rather than just throwing it out there, kind of what they love? What should they, where should they direct it? Well, we've created a centralized hub on tourismvancouver.com backslash love. And if you post up and you go to that hub, you'll find out what to do, where to post, and where we can centralize all of these great stories from our residents and how we can share them with others and inspire others to get out there but doing so safely. Uh, it's, it seems like it's kind of uh, playing up on the fact that because of the pandemic and the lack of travel, uh, that people are kind of rediscovering or discovering things in their own towns and communities that maybe they hadn't seen or experienced before. Is that the idea, kind of, to, to not only be a, a tourist in your own town, but share that with others as well? That's, that's exactly right. You know, I, I've been away for 10 years. I just moved back. I'm a local town boy here. And I always found it interesting in talking to people, saying there's nothing to do, there's nothing going on. And now when everything's been stopped, you realize perhaps how much we did have, maybe took for granted, and now it's our chance to get back out and explore what is available because it is a great city, it's a global city, and there are lots of things going on despite what's happening right now. I know we've talked about this on on the program before as well, though, with a lot of businesses that would normally depend on tourists, either from the United States or international tourists, they're now depending on the domestic market, uh, even though there's really no way the domestic market can fill all of that void. But they do play a very key role right now. Absolutely. You, you, you nailed it on the head. If we look at spending, and we'll use 2019 as our base point, that was a fifth consecutive record year for spending. So it was $14.4 billion injected into the Metro Vancouver economy. Because we're a global city, we have a lot of spending coming out of the U.S. and international markets. And that equates to about 86% of that number. So you take that out of the mix. You take out of the mix uh, a lot of the interprovincial travel and some of the real localized travel. Uh, it's taken a massive hit to our economy. So we might be about $4 billion in spending uh, for 2020, if we're lucky. Um, when people uh, will take part, or I'm sure many people will, are you asking them then to also say take a picture or, or do a kind of a review of, of what they're saying that uh, is their favorite part of the city or, or anything like that? Exactly. What do you love about the city? Uh, What gets you going? What gets you out? What's the great experience that you're enjoying 
that you'd love to share with others to remind them to to cycle around and get into the city. Uh, because I said earlier, I think we, we maybe perhaps take it for granted a little bit and don't realize how many great things there are. So if residents can inspire other residents to get out, then we're actually supporting our communities and, and, and people that are working on just trying to make a living, trying to get by as we manage through this pandemic. Just do it safely. Uh, have you noticed or ha- how are things doing as far as as tourists and, and tourism dollars? Uh, you put that, that number out kind of comparing it to pre-pandemic times, but are you seeing people are, that, that are in the position to do so are still supporting businesses and, and doing things that do support, uh, again, operators that would normally depend on tourists? Certainly we see uh, people getting out. I, I try to get out. Uh, my wife and I once a week to visit a restaurant as an example and do retail and just watch what's happening. And there is a core group of people that's uh, really figured out how to respect the virus and sort of move beyond the fear part of it, if you will, um, and trying to carry on their, with their lives, but doing so safely and respecting the PHO uh, directives. So it is out there. We take the precautions. We can actually still move around the city for which we're grateful to do that. Uh, when is the is the I guess I'm calling it a competition. I'm not sure that's the right word for it. Uh, is the campaign has it started up yeah. or when does it officially start? Yeah, just it just launched. It just launched now, and so ideally, if we can create some momentum in our current state uh, of um, uh, of activity of restrictions, hopefully we can beat down the pandemic and some of these restrictions start to roll back as we get into spring and then summer. Perhaps we'll have that much, much, uh, that much more going on. We can create a little momentum, create a little bit more commerce, preserve some more jobs, uh, and support our local communities. That would really be ideal because 2021, the way it's looking, is going to be another tough year for this sector. Yeah. Yes. Unfortunately, uh, it is looking that way. Uh, one uh, final question: What platforms are you uh, suggesting people use as far as sharing, uh, whether it's pictures or, or a few words and experiences? Oh, get out in TikTok, use Instagram, use Twitter, share it on Facebook. We'll, we'll find it out there somewhere and grab hold of it. And so will others if they're looking under that hashtag Love Vancouver. All right. Sounds good. Thank you so much for taking some time on the day of the launch of the campaign. Thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me, Jill. I appreciate it. Well, over the years, we have certainly covered a number of stories of dogs that have gone missing. We have covered stories of pet detectives, searches that have taken days and weeks. They do not all end with a reunification of dog and owner. Some of them are heartbreaking. And if you are a dog owner and a dog lover, your heart probably breaks a little bit every time you hear one of those stories as well. So that is why we want to bring you this story. And it has to do with a dog that was missing on Vancouver Island. Missing for more than two weeks, the owner stopped everything to try and find the dog. Here with the rest of that story is our show contributor, John Jang. Good afternoon, Jill. It was a happy reunion this morning between one man and man's best friend. Kino, a four-year-old Husky Shepherd, finally reunited with his owner, Jesse McMaster, after almost 16 nights spent in the wild after suddenly taking off on January 26th. Joining us now is Leslie Steves, an administrator for Rome. It's a charity specializing in reuniting lost and missing pets with their owners. And Leslie, your team was able to get directly involved with this search over the past couple of weeks. So take us back to the beginning and how Rome first got involved with trying to find Kino. 
Um, well, on January the 26th at Jesse, uh, Kino's owner and him, they were hiking up on Mount Prevo. And Jesse was on a long line because he is a husky and they are known to, um, you know, to, to get, get the spirit in, under their paws. And, uh, Kino saw something and he, he took off after it. And he hasn't been seen until this, well, he's been a couple of sightings, but really not seen again until this morning. And Leslie, from my understanding, Jesse was even looking into hiring a helicopter just so that he could scan the area from above and keep an eye out for Kino. I mean, clearly this was a man determined to see this through and bring his pet home. Absolutely. There was a helicopter booked um, for yesterday, but the, the snow came in. There were drones that were flying, and at one point the fog rolled in and they had to quit. There were a multitude, just a small army of people on the ground um, getting the information out, following uh, tracks, following leads. Um, the leads took us as far as uh, Coombs, where there was a potential sighting of Kino, and he actually could have made it there because of the um, the power lines. It would be a long run, but for a dog like Kino, um, uh, it, it definitely something he could do. Um, also, the big concern was that he was dragging a long line. So, you know, getting tangled up or, you know, caught in something was a potential, although we felt pretty confident he could uh, chew his way through it because he is a resourceful, smart guy. Anyway, he's been dragging that around for the last 17 days. So um, last night at 6 p.m., we got the information that he had been spotted again on Mount Prevo, very close to where he went missing. Uh, it was already 6 o'clock, so it was dark. Um, the person who reported the um, the sighting, we lost cell contact with them. So they had sent the coordinates, but we didn't get the exact coordinates. But Jesse went up anyway, and there was no sign of him. So he came down last night to regroup, get all his gear, get back up there and camp there for the night. He's a pretty resourceful, tough guy, and he had really good support from his friends and colleagues. Um, and then this morning on the Shawnigan local community page, somebody called Shaman posted that around, I think it was 4.30, he had seen uh, Kino on Mount Sicker Road near Russell Farms Market. Um, one of my colleagues, Rochelle, who doesn't ever seem to sleep, saw that comment on the page. She got a hold of me. I got a hold of Judy, who has been... Uh, just a powerhouse up in Shawnigan for helping uh, people with their animals. Um, she got some people together that could head right to that area. Um, and then at 5.20 a.m., I got a phone call from Justin McKinley, and he very calmly and quietly said, I have Kino in my truck with me. Amazing. And and then he apologized for waking me up. And I was like, I was crying by then. Anyway, so he saw Kino. He tried um, to call out to him, and Kino wasn't ready. He got ahead of him, and he um, parked his truck. He opened the truck doors and just sat quietly. And Kino literally just gave up. He just said, I'm tired, and I need to go home to Jesse. 
And there's um, lots of pictures on our Facebook page that will really make you cry. <laughs> uh, I've seen the photos and the videos, and yeah, it's hard not to get a little emotional when you're going through the timeline of this 16-day search and the the roller coaster ride of, of getting some leads and then those leads not working out. It is an experience, but uh, you know, even more stunning is the fact that Justin, the gentleman who found Kino apparently refused to accept a cash reward. Could you elaborate on that just a little bit here? Yes, there was a reward offered um, by an anonymous donor. And, um, um, you know, um, Justin was certainly um, in line for it. And he said no. He was just happy that um, he, he was. He just was so excited that he, he felt like he won the lottery is what he said. And, of course, Jesse hasn't. You know, he's had to take time off work. He's had to get camping gear. You know, there's been getting, you know, supplies, posters, all that kind of stuff. It it um, it adds up. And so uh, Justin very generously offered the reward to Jesse. So I haven't been able to follow up on all of that completely yet, but um, it it was just a really touching touching gesture. Period. <laughs> you know, just just lovely. And then um, uh, Kino's already been to the vet. Somebody else. Um, anonymously paid for that, I believe. And he just needed a couple of eye drops and some more medicine. So he's he's looking good. He just needs to gain a little bit of weight back. Over two weeks out in the wild, it is incredible that Kino is actually in relatively good health. That is a major relief. She is Leslie Steves, administrator for Rome, reuniting owners with Animal Missing. You can find their website at romebc.org. That's Rome, R-O-A-M. Leslie, thank you so much for your time here today. Thanks for your call. Bye-bye. And Jill, in case you're wondering, that golden moment where the reunion originally happened was actually caught on video. Okay, everyone, Jesse just showed up. We found Jesse. <laughs> Hey buddy. Hey buddy. Ah, so lovely uh, to hear that uh, and to just uh, sense the emotion in being reunited. I can't imagine, and I'm sure any dog owners, dog lovers, uh, people with fur members of their family would feel the exact same way. Thanks uh, for that story. Always nice to have a story that uh, has a happy conclusion.